You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, May 6, 2021. I'm Nicole McNulty. And I'm Jack Stone Truitt. The pandemic hit Black-owned businesses hard, but their survival is about more than just economics. It's also about America's heritage. Much of American culinary heritage is like a gift from Black people. Like, you're welcome, America. COVID upended life for New York City's homeless. Most use city shelters, but what about those who don't? I see the guys going down in the tunnels. It really hurts me when I see that they're young. And art fairs are returning, but New York's art world is finding it has to adapt to a new COVID reality. It doesn't mean that we have to stop doing anything. It just means that we have to do things slightly differently. And a rent hike could be coming for rent-regulated apartments. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Renee Rodin. Attorney General Letitia James has issued a request to intervene in a federal lawsuit filed by a coalition of black voters against misleading robocalls. The complaint accuses Project 1599, a self-described civil rights organization, of making false claims about mail-in voting, that mail-in ballots would release personal information to the police or credit card companies. The organizers specifically stated their intentions to send these calls to black voters. Over 5,000 residents in New York received these messages. Project 1599 could not be reached for comment. Today, the first TV ad for mayoral candidate Andrew Yang aired. In polls from last week, Yang was the frontrunner, but one recent poll has Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams as three points ahead of Yang. As Uptown Radio's Megan Zerez finds, that's almost entirely thanks to one group, Black voters. That survey of 500 New Yorkers shows that amongst Black voters, Eric Adams has more support than any other candidate. Black voters have some of the highest turnout rates in local elections. Adams, a former NYPD captain, has touted police reform as one of his top priorities. I'm the only candidate that understands how to use every unit in the police department to keep this city safe. Adams secured endorsements this week from several victims of police violence. William Bell Sr. is the father of Sean Bell, who was killed by undercover police officers in 2006. He spoke this morning in front of NYPD headquarters. I say this way, you've been on, on both sides of the fence. And I hope everybody else do vote for my man, Eric Adams. Adams, a moderate, is also the only candidate who supports reviving a revamped anti-crimes unit. The controversial NYPD plainclothes unit was disbanded last June. Megan Zerez, Columbia Radio News. Yang will be speaking tonight alongside other candidates at a mayoral forum on immigration. The mayoral primaries are over six weeks away. Mayor Bill de Blasio has announced the city will invest $25 million in new funding to employ local artists. Possible projects in the city artist core include performances, public artworks, pop-up shows outdoors, and murals. We'll have more on Broadway's reopening later in the broadcast. In a briefing at City Hall this morning, de Blasio again tried to distance himself from claims that he had canceled Christopher Columbus. The dispute arose after an announcement earlier this week from the Department of Education that the Columbus Day holiday would be renamed Indigenous Peoples and Italian American Heritage Day. De Blasio says the former chancellor of schools, Richard Carranza, did not inform him or the new chancellor, Misha Porter, of the change. Someone put this in motion. Uh, They didn't brief me. They should have. They should have briefed her. It was not the right way to do things. It just wasn't. De Blasio previously said that the holiday's name change was the right way forward. 
and today's weather is moving in the summer direction, sunny and in the low 60s in Central Park. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Renee Roden. During the pandemic, tenants got aid in the form of rent freezes and moratoriums on evictions. Landlords got access to government programs like PPP. But now, many property owners say they're finding it tough to stay in business. Last night, the Rent Guidelines Board passed a preliminary vote that could let rents rise between 0 and 2 percent on one-year leases. Joshua Stein is a commercial real estate attorney in New York City. He's represented both landlords and commercial tenants. Well, the board itself is appointed by the mayor. It's supposed to be balanced between property owner representatives representatives and tenant representatives. And then you've got this circus of political demonstrators uh, with signs and screaming and uh, cancel rent. And I'm a poor property owner and I can't make a living. Um, And it's all very emotional, very irrational, having nothing to do with the alleged uh, administrative mission of this board, which is supposed to look at how much expenses have gone up and let property owners keep up with their expenses. What has happened is because of the political pressures over the last five years or so, the expenses have gone up faster than the permitted rents have gone up. Uh, And this has been an absolute disaster for property owners. What would happen to some of these landlords if they continue to lose out on this rent on these payments? Well, it's not only the Rent Guidelines Board that is squeezing property owners. It is the pandemic, the evictions, the moratoriums, uh, and above all, uh, ever-rising expenses. And it is reasonable to predict foreclosures, changes in ownership as a result, and then ultimately, if these buildings become completely uneconomic, there will be real estate tax lien sales where uh These buildings will not be able to pay their real estate taxes, and the city will get to take them over. Could you just give me a few examples of what those property expenses are? The biggest one is actually real estate taxes. The city takes about 30 percent of your gross revenue as real estate taxes. Payroll is another big one. Uh, You also have utilities, electric, water. You have insurance, and then you have repairs and maintenance. So those expenses pretty much eat up probably 85 percent of your revenue. What would this zero to two percent increase mean for tenants? And what is the best way to balance both the needs of landlords and tenants? Well, you know, you you have to pay rent. There is a cost to providing housing. Housing is not free. So uh, if if you're a property owner, your costs go up. If you're a tenant, it's entirely appropriate that your rent should go up, especially if it's way below market, as it often is with the rent regulation regime. Now, the best way to balance the interests of tenants and property owners is to seize the current moment as a perfect opportunity to get rid of rent regulation. And the reality is there's lots of vacant apartments, lots of them. Um, Some of them are from people who have fled. Some of them are from rent-regulated apartments that came back to the owners, and the owners do not want to rent them because it's uneconomic to rent them. Uh, And you have rents declining as a result of the people who have fled the city. But how would getting rid of rent regulation help, say, tenants who've lost their job during the pandemic? It is not the job of property owners 
to accommodate people who cannot afford the market price for whatever goods and services they need. That's a governmental agenda. It's not something that should be foisted on uh, the people who happen to own property and have tremendous expenses that they need to pay in order to operate that property in a responsible way. Joshua Stein is a commercial real estate attorney in New York City. Thank you so much for being with us. It was my pleasure, and thanks a lot. On Monday, New York State extended its eviction moratorium again until August 31st. But experts are worried there might be an increase in homelessness after the moratorium lifts. Deborah Paget is a professor of social work at NYU. We're holding everything together. We're kind of with Band-Aids and rope and a little electrical tape. We're facing a potential human disaster. Most of the city's homeless use the shelter system, but roughly 4,000 don't. Renee Roden has the story of life at the limits of the shelter system. Dylan is lounging on the sidewalk on East 1st Street, right outside a park graffitied with murals. A DJ is playing music. Dylan's wearing sweatpants and a red turtleneck. Sweat is starting to drip down his beard. Dylan is 30. He grew up on the Upper West Side. He's asked us not to use his last name. Right after high school, he attended Fordham, briefly, before dropping out after the first semester. I was very into math when I was a kid. The program called Mathematica, um, which was basically um, a problem-solving computer language for advanced mathematical concepts. A team of three people in red jackets approach Dylan. They're city outreach workers, and they hand him a list of soup kitchens and shelters. Dylan has already seen most of what's on those resource sheets. I've done the shelter systems before, but they, um, they're generally very crowded. I've, I've had experiences in there where um, stuff got stolen, where I didn't feel safe. Does the shelter model of housing work? No. In, in one word, no. That's Deborah Paget, professor of social work at NYU. In 1979, the New York State Supreme Court established a right to shelter in New York City. Paget says that means the city and the state are required to provide shelter for every New Yorker. But it's a step short of a solution to homelessness. It's not housing. It is not housing. It's shelter. It's emergency shelter. A few years ago, Dylan decided to give shelter a try. He moved into a city-run dormitory with 40 beds in a room. But one of the other residents threatened him, so he left. In January, with the cold weather, Dylan settled into a subway service tunnel. Oh, uh, it's wanted somewhere to know that I could um, keep my stuff together a little bit and have a roof over my head. Today, Jerry Howard, who is 71, lives and works as a Catholic worker, an organization in the East Village that provides support for homeless people. But 20 years ago, like Dylan, Howard was looking for a respite from the streets and didn't want the shelter. One day, on a subway platform, he noticed a man walking down into the tunnels, so he followed. And now you go down on the track and you walk a little ways, you see that, that there's an opening, a big space, and you could see people down there, homeless people. And, okay, your curiosity is always curious until somebody call your name. Oh, Jerry! <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You look and it's a friend, it's somebody that you know down there. Before you know it, you, you're conversating. Uh, he gets high, you get high. In other words, uh, he show you the ropes. Howard says for him, the subway tunnel provided some stability and privacy for the five years it was his home. 
but it still didn't make up for the lack of real housing. I see the guys going down in the tunnels. It really hurts me when I see that they're young. So that tells me it's another generation, sort of like going down the drain. The past year has made life even more difficult for the homeless in New York. The pandemic closed many public spaces homeless people relied on for shelter from the elements. So overnight, right, bathrooms were taken away. When food courts shut down, when public libraries shut down, when anything where people could congregate and gather. That's Carl Chan, director of partnerships at the Bowery Mission, a rescue center that connects clients to permanent housing and runs several soup kitchens and emergency shelters. He says they, like other groups, provided emergency support last spring when the pandemic began. So we had mobile bathroom units. We brought in mobile hand washing stations. And, you know, we had a shower program that was internal as well. So we even partnered with an organization to bring in mobile showers so people could take showers externally in a safe, COVID-friendly way. About a month ago, Dylan dropped a cigarette on his pillow in the tunnel. The flames grew big enough that the fire department came and Dylan and his neighbors evacuated. He's been spending less time in the tunnel since, often hanging outside the Catholic worker in East Village. I was coming in the house from the outside and Dylan was at the door. Phil Bazile is a live-in volunteer at the Catholic worker. A couple of weeks ago, Dylan showed up. He had been pepper sprayed. And I looked at him, and his face is all red, and he had snot coming down, and, you know, he was, he, his eyes were shut and tearing. And he said, I need a shower, I need a shower. Bud Courtney also lives and works as a Catholic worker. A large part of his job is helping to run the daily soup line. Every day at 9.30, men and women line up on the street for hot soup, sandwiches, and coffee. What do we got here? We have peanut butter and jelly, and we have bread. One bread, I think. Buttered bread? Just bread. Just bread, okay. Just bread. Organizations that do homeless outreach, like the Catholic Worker, Breaking Ground, or Bowery Mission, say forming relationships is crucial to actually helping their guests and clients. Courtney says his real work is talking to people. Everything we do is a mandate, short of establishing relationships. Uh, And people keep coming back, hey, for sustenance, for clothing, for food, but more importantly for a little human touch. Good morning. Kelly Doran is a professor at NYU and an expert in medical care for the homeless. She says she considers housing a form of health care, especially during the pandemic. We've seen during COVID-19 that people in shelters aren't safe from illness either. In fact, it was in the congregate shelters where people were being exposed to SARS-CoV-2 catching COVID-19 and dying. Patrick Bonk works at Breaking Ground, one of the organizations contracted by the city to do street outreach to Manhattan's unsheltered population. When you're street homeless, almost all of your energy is focused on survival. But when you have a place to sleep, when you have a door to lock, you don't have to worry about those things. Um, and so you, you, can, you can work on, on other things much more easily. Bonk believes not just shelter, but stable private housing is key to addressing unemployment, addiction, or mental health issues. The, the key thing is affordable housing. That is always, you know, there's not enough. And when there's not enough, people are going to remain homeless. So you're saying it's simple. We just need more affordable housing. And also it's complex. <laughs> Because we're dealing yeah, with people. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, a, a lot of what outreach does is really just try to build trust, understand, and then try to work with, with each individual to find, to find solutions that are going to work for them. 
Today, Dylan is looking for a permanent home outside the subway tunnels. Bowery Residence Committee does outreach to those staying in the transit system, and he talked with them about finding an apartment. I've talked to BRC, a Bowery Residence Committee, about um, going into some kind of safe haven situation, um, which I um, might get um, done pretty soon. In the meantime, as the weather warms up and the city reopens, Dylan is trying to avoid the tunnels, sleeping in parks, on the streets, or on the subway trains. Renee Roden, Columbia Radio News. The Whitney Museum of American Art recently debuted a new outdoor exhibit. It's called Day's End by the artist David Hammond. Its steel frame outlines the shape of a shed. The piece is permanent and sits by the museum, right at the edge of the Hudson River. As Fei Lu reports, the piece is inspired by local LGBTQ history. It takes a minute to make out David Hammond's piece, Day's End, when you're walking towards the Whitney. The steel pipes that formed the installation seem to melt into the backdrop of the Hudson, the clouds, and the buildings. Audrey Panson, a visitor to the Whitney Museum, says at first glance the piece first struck her as industrial and minimalistic. I wouldn't really know what it's all about if I like didn't read something about it, which I think is kind of odd, but makes you kind of wonder more about it maybe. While visually ambiguous, the piece is actually rooted in New York City's relationship with the West Side's LGBTQ community. The artist David Hammond created Days End in part as homage to the work of another artist, Gordon Maddox Clark. That piece was an abandoned shed that used to stand on Pier 52 nearby. Hammond's structure also recalls the community that gathered at the piers during the 1970s, at a time when being LGBTQ was dangerous and isolating in the city. I mean, in many respects, it's a kind of uh, sacred territory, especially in the period before the advent of uh, a widespread queer culture. That's Jonathan Katz, an associate professor of practice at the University of Pennsylvania. He also curated the first major queer exhibition at the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery in 2010, titled Hide and Seek, Difference and Desire in American Portraiture. The decrepit piers that lined that part of the city were a meeting ground for literally thousands of queers. It was, of course, particularly those who were excluded from other more upscale establishments, so it had a distinct emphasis on communities of color and communities of, of a social class that would not comfortably mix with this sort of Tony bars in the West Village. Katz says although he admires it, his feelings about the piece are complicated. He says it appropriates a site for the needs of the Whitney rather than the community that once made the peers its home. While I perfectly understand and as a work of art get David Hammond's impulse I am troubled by the fact that in claiming the ghost pier, the community for which those peers were most central has been left out of the conversation and left out of the equation. He also recalls the liberation the peers provided him during that time. Where else could you go with 4,000 naked men on an afternoon and, you know, possibly have sex? I mean, it was great. And Katz says while he wishes the work better reflected that history, David Hammond's Day's End does spark reflections about that past. As she stood by the Whitney looking at the piece, Celia Sanchez says it's already a conversation starter. Well, I think it looks good. Uh, we can see uh, through uh, and we can see the west side. 
uh, and I think it's a good thing to, um, for the memory of the history of this place. Day's End is now on view by the Whitney Museum. Fei Lu, Columbia Radio News. You're listening to Uptown Radio. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Jack Stone Truitt. And I'm Nicole McNulty. Broadway is back in the spotlight as tickets go on sale for the first time in more than a year. A Michelin-starred restaurant without roast duck? The iconic 11 Madison Park is going meat-free. And how some Black-owned businesses are thriving as the economy recovers. Those stories and more coming up. One of the city's most acclaimed restaurants is going meatless. Earlier this week, 11 Madison Park announced it will stop serving meat and seafood when it reopens in June. The menu will be free of animal products except milk and honey for tea and coffee. This is a radical shift for the world of fine dining filled with foie gras and caviar. It could also be the start of a bigger trend for an industry looking to cater to consumers more conscious of the impact meat has on the climate and their health. Rick Kamek is Dean of Restaurant and Hospitality Management for the Institute of Culinary Education. Rick, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. How big of a deal is this for the restaurant world? Uh, It's a really big deal. Um, I think it was completely unexpected unless you were really an insider in the know. They're obviously, you know, putting a stake in the ground and saying, you know, we are committed to this and uh, it's a big deal. And I think it will influence uh, restaurant decisions going forward. What kind of influence could this have on other restaurants switching to a plant-based menu, given its status in the dining world? Uh, It's going to influence others that are thinking about going in that direction or sort of going in that direction. You know, in in our own school, we we started a plant-based program, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago uh, that's going gangbusters. So, you know, it's a direction that everyone's thinking about. Uh, This kind of puts it over the top when when a restaurant of that level with that prestige puts that stake in the ground, it's going to make others think and others are definitely going to follow suit. It's going to happen. What is behind the interest from a chef's perspective of plant-based cuisine? I think to some degree there are people that are doing it because they just, you know, it's animal rights. They just feel that it's the right thing to do. They're taking a political stand. I think there's people that are doing it purely for health-based. I think some people are doing it for profit-based. I think some people just truly believe that it's just a healthier way to go and and a better way for them to eat and live their lives. and, And they believe heavily in it. And, you know, time will tell whether this is a trend or not. It's a direction that we're going in that's probably here to stay. And is there any historical comparison to a major restaurant making a shift of this kind, be it, you know, to a vegan food or some other change to their menu? To be perfectly honest, I can't think of one. I I really can't. This is probably the most significant change from a restaurant of that stature that I can think of since I've been in the business, which is, you know, 20 plus years. Uh, It's significant. This This is a big deal. It's super interesting. And uh, it'll be fun to to watch it all play out. And is there anything else you think that's important for people to know about this story? This is going to be, 
an interesting change. You know, whether this becomes a turning point, I mean, there's the slow foods movement, there's been other movements over time, the vegetarian movement, uh, there's been movements over time that have created significant shifts in history. The question's going to become, is this going to be another one? Is this going to put vegan over the top in the next, you know, you know 20% of restaurants that open are going to be vegan restaurants? That, that's what's going to be interesting to see. Rick Kamak is Dean of Restaurant and Hospitality Management for the Institute of Culinary Education. Rick, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Nice talking to you. The odds are stacked against Black-owned businesses from the beginning. A study by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York says they're almost twice as likely to fail than others. They face hurdles like increasing gentrification, which causes higher rents, and a lack of access to financing. The pandemic made the situation even worse. But now, as the city reopens, a group of Black-owned businesses in Crown Heights is bucking that trend. And as Layla Dose reports, this isn't just about economics. It's about the social and cultural fabric of a neighborhood. Hi, Cassandra. Cassandra Devilmar owns La Cru Café, a Haitian-American restaurant. Before she opened in 2018, she painted the restaurant's name on its windows in bright yellow and lime green. There was only a McDonald's down the block. The neighborhood was almost entirely a food desert. The neighborhood just felt a bit depressed. Like, it didn't make sense why it was neglected and that there just needed to be somebody to, you know, invest. I just felt like I would be a good person to do that at the time, at that moment. Davilmar opened La Coup in a closed 99-cent store after she saw a four-rand sign go up. Even though she was an investment banker, it wasn't easy. Renovating would cost more than $300,000, but she says loan after loan application was rejected. There was no plumbing, no kitchen. She maxed out on her credit cards. Even before the pandemic, opening a business was a struggle, but Davilmara was dedicated to making it happen. It was literally like, you, you hear like paycheck to paycheck, like it was exactly enough money if anything went wrong, if an equipment broke, then, you know, we might we won't have enough money. So like if anything bad happened, like that was it. Then the pandemic hit. Sales dropped by half. It looked like the end was near. We closed for about a month and a half in 2020, like in April or whatnot. And at that point, I didn't really know what we were gonna do, but you know, we got grants and that helped us out. Including a grant from Google and the New York City Chamber of Commerce. Grants and loans are one of the ways black owned businesses like hers survived the pandemic. But before that, she says she was discriminated against. According to the Federal Reserve Bank, business owners like Devilmar are denied loans at twice the rate of white owners. But the pandemic changed that. People went into the streets and said, right, we've got to do something. Black people have to be helped more and paid more attention to. That's Jessica Gordon Nempard. She teaches political economy and black history at CUNY. She says public pressure in the wake of the pandemic led to the state and federal governments offering forgivable loans for minority-owned businesses. But companies and communities also provided support. For Black businesses, it really has been about loyal customers. The more the community sees them as an important part of the community, um, the stronger, longer they last, the better, the better they weather um, crises, that kind of thing. Nambhart says this kind of community support has a history going back far beyond the pandemic. Landlords forgiving rent, community members investing in or crowdfunding to support small businesses. La Cafe also gave back. 
Devamar gave out free beef patties during last summer's Black Lives Matter protests. Her restaurant donated meals to healthcare workers at Brookdale Hospital. And that paid off. When the pandemic forced Lakhu to shut down last year, the community raised $5,000 within days. Restaurants really exist as more than places where you get to buy food, but as places where you get to share in culture of other folks. That's Abdin Mondesser. He's a local resident and also an oral historian at the Weeksville Heritage Center. Crown Heights, where Lakhu Cafe now stands, used to be known as Weeksville, the country's first free black community founded in 1838. Mondesser spent a year interviewing local business owners like Devilmar. He says powerful historic themes from the time of the community's founding are still present today. Some of those themes is like refuge, entrepreneurship, celebration. Mondesser says eventually, Weeksville was almost erased. But despite the challenges that many of today's Black-owned businesses are facing, many are surviving. Despite a backdrop of luxury buildings going up, he still sees colorful signs for restaurants with greens, yellows, purples. He still hears Creole or Senegalese. He still smells aromas like jackfruit, soul food. Every time I come here, I try to get one of the patties. Uh, the chicken sandwiches um, are the Creole chicken sandwich. That's my favorite thing to order. Tanya Hopkins, a food historian, says black Americans brought many dishes and ingredients to American cuisine. West African dishes like black-eyed peas, okra, gumbo, southern soul food like barbecue, and bourbon. And when Caribbean communities moved to Crown Heights in the 1960s, they also brought plantain, curries, squash, and soups like pepper pot. Much of American culinary heritage is um, a disguised black culinary heritage, like a gift from black people. Like, you're welcome, America. You know, you're welcome. Hopkins says the list is endless, and it's constantly transforming. She says many black-owned restaurants are surviving by innovating and diversifying their cuisines. Survival, not just survival, but thrival, if that's a word. Uh, in this, I call it, a, there's like a new renaissance, black renaissance that's happening. Back at La Coup Cafe, Davilmar says she's happy to see Black-owned businesses in her neighborhood are reopening their doors. This week, she plans to extend her cafe's hours to 9 p.m. She's setting up more chairs, yellow wooden ones, and adding new dishes to her menu, like spicy Haitian peanut butter cookies, a new twist on a historic dish. Laila Dos, Columbia Radio News. Broadway tickets go back on sale today. After being shut down for more than a year, theaters will officially reopen at full capacity in September. Prior to the pandemic, almost a quarter million people saw Broadway shows every week. Reporter Haley Zhao went to Times Square to find out whether theater goers are ready to return. The front doors of the Phantom of the Opera Theater are locked and dusty. A government notice in black letters says, beginning March 2020, the theater is closed. No one is at the box office, and the block looks deserted. But hopefully, it won't be like this for long. 
As tickets go on sale today, some are ready to make their first purchase. I will buy one. Yes, I will buy whatever, whatever for me and my family. Yes. Salvador Magri is taking a morning stroll through Times Square, two blocks from the theater. He has lived in New York City for 60 years, and before the pandemic hit, he went to Broadway shows often. But now he doesn't even remember the last show he watched because it's been that long. He is a little concerned about being in the same room with hundreds of people, but having lived through the pandemic, I know how to survive. <laughs> yes, the experience you have is so you, life is a survivor all the time. So you take a chance to do whatever the, you take a chance on your life. That's all. And you keep it doing. Just around the corner, Grayson Allen Bird is taking photos for a couple. As a freelance photographer here, his livelihood depends on tourists. He says he misses how crowded Times Square used to be. I moved here in 2017, and I did see the long lines, the you know the anticipation for the shows and stuff, and、uh, I see how dead it is right now. According to the Broadway League, before the pandemic, about 70 percent of ticket purchases were made by tourists. Bird is excited for the crowds that the shows will bring back. A lot of people come to Times Square or New York in general just for Broadway shows. So I mean, it's Broadway. Broadway is Broadway. But Stephen Chakelson, a theater management professor at Columbia University, wasn't as optimistic. Tourism is down considerably, and because Broadway relies on tourism, we're not 100% sure that attendance is going to go back up to where it had been. Governor Cuomo says theaters must operate in accordance with state health and safety guidance. But Chakelson worries even if Broadway theaters reopen on time, there won't be as many shows as before. Broadway shows need to be able to open at full capacity or close to full capacity in order to be able to make the economics work. And so there may need to be some concessions in terms of for some shows to reduce their operating costs at least initially, like reducing the number of performances to fewer than the traditional eight shows a week. But this might be good news for theater fans here in New York. If you want that ticket to see popular shows like Hamilton, Chakelson says now might be your chance to get it. Haley Zhao, Columbia Radio News. New York hosts as many as 40 art fairs in a normal year. Last year, that dropped to zero. But art fairs are coming back. Freeze New York launched its international fair this week. The city hopes there will be more to follow. Fei Lu reports on how art fairs are returning and adapting what used to be a very in-person experience into a pandemic-friendly event. Art fairs are places for artists, buyers, sellers, and fans to see art in person. They're usually extremely busy events with a lot of person-to-person contact, but this is not like other years. So I think our biggest challenge is how do we recreate that same atmosphere given the new、uh, challenges that we're facing. Ryan Stanier is the founder of the Other Art Fair, a fair that features artists who don't have an exclusive agreement with a gallery. We, it doesn't mean that we have to stop doing anything. It just means that we have to do things slightly differently. New York City regularly hosts two of the world's largest art fairs: Freeze New York and the Armory Show. They're amongst the 20 to 40 fairs that happen annually here, making New York City the largest art market in America. Curations range from the old masters like Vermeer and Da Vinci. Modern art and contemporary art, and emerging artists. Art ranges from a few hundred dollars to the listing price of a Park Avenue apartment. For high-end art fairs that showcase international artists, travel restrictions might force organizers to get creative with their curatorial decisions. 
Alessandro Berni is the founder of Clio Art Fair. So we are planning to uh, select more American artists or art international artists based already based in the uh, United States. Clio Art Fair regularly features international artists from all continents, including Asia, South America, and Africa. But that might change for 2021. Because uh, we don't know what will be the situation in terms uh, of uh, travel plan, flight between a country and another. A large challenge art fairs will face is how COVID-19-centered no-touch policies will affect art that's designed for attendee interaction. James Milley, co-founder of Superfine, an art fair that also features independent artists, says interactive art is not common at their events, but does appear. One piece by Puerto Rican artist Sebastian Gutierrez is a kind of multi-layered portrait of a figure made of different colored fabrics and textiles. And then underneath it was almost like the skeleton with, you know, some like muscular um, uh, features to it and uh, like, like muscle fibers and everything. Um, and there were there were holes in the front. So where like the uh, the face's eyes were and the mouth. Um, you could actually like touch and stretch and you would be able to see this, this skeleton of a person underneath. James says that for this year's events, precautions will definitely be taken. I think just pretty much like everything else that's going on, um, you know, frequent sanitizing and uh, making some adjustments for this year just based on, you know, not having so much touchy-feely art. Um <laughs> Ryan Stanier, founder of the Other Art Fair, says artists are also responding to the pandemic and to the challenges in exhibition as the fairs reopen. This is what an artist is going to face when they're in their studio thinking about concepts of work. Then, of course, this is their challenge. And, he says, the artist's choices will also impact the Other Art Fair's curatorial decisions. I'm expecting, you know, when we start looking, going into studios and talking to artists again, and these sort of interactive pieces which artists would have been creating historically... It'll be interesting to see what their response is, um, you know, and the and these responses will then be shown at each of the fairs. Alessandro Berni, founder of Clio, says he's not worried about the no-touch guidelines being an obstacle. After more than one year of pandemic, uh, people is prepared. Everyone dress a mask. They have a hand sanitizer, and uh, so I we will do whatever is necessary, but. For our point of view, it's, it's pretty easy to, to respect uh, the, the rules requested by New York State. But beyond business opportunities, art fairs in 2021 provide opportunities for art lovers to physically interact with the community they were removed from during the pandemic. James Milley, co-founder of Superfine, says it's the connection between artists and attendees that makes art fairs so special. I know that, you know, people who, who love art are excited to see it in person again. Um, over 75% of visitors uh, to Superfine say that their favorite aspect of the fair is meeting the artists in person. I, I would say that the the interaction between people, even more so than just being able to sell your art in person, is, is really the reason that we're, we're coming back and why art fairs in general are. Art is a fundamental part of New York City's identity. And for many New Yorkers, the return of art fairs is the first step towards a return to normalcy. And just like how New Yorkers can adapt to anything, art fairs will also find ways to function as well. Visit uptownradio.org for the respective dates of Clio Art Fair, Superfine, and the other art fair. Felu, Uptown Radio. In March of last year, a 5.7 magnitude earthquake rocked Salt Lake City. 
It was the strongest quake to hit the city since the 1800s. It was just one event in a series of unpleasant surprises Nicole McNulty got last spring. In this piece from our commentary series, Nicole reflects on how she emerged from a season of disasters with a new and deep appreciation for someone close to her. On the morning of March 18th last year, I was asleep and dreaming I was on a sailboat rocked by choppy waves. When I opened my eyes, instead of the inside of a cabin, I found myself in my room. I'm from Colorado. We don't get earthquake training. So my instinct was to panic. I burst into the shaking kitchen and grabbed my roommate by the shoulders, and we started running in place, screaming. After what couldn't have been more than 10 seconds, the shaking stopped. Then the aftershocks began, occasionally rocking the house. It felt apocalyptic. The COVID lockdown had just begun, and now this. I texted my mom to say that if things got worse in Utah, my roommates and I would be coming to Colorado to camp on her property in the mountains. My mother is my rock, so I assumed this would be a no-brainer. But she told me not to come, because she was really, really sick. She thought it might be COVID, but wasn't sure. A week before, she was at a conference and had taken at least a few flights. But it was so early in the pandemic. Her full name is Vandalin Yvonne McNulty. She goes by Lynn, and she is one of the coolest people I have ever met. One day when she was 15, she bought a blue Mustang convertible on her way home from school with her babysitting money. She became an ER nurse. She's a scuba diver, a sailor, a race car driver. And she also has chronic asthma. When she got sick, I didn't realize for a while how bad it really was. We texted a couple times a week as usual, but she wouldn't answer the phone. I didn't know she couldn't get enough air in her lungs to talk. Things weren't getting better. In fact, she thought she might not make it. And she didn't want me to worry. Meanwhile, I stayed in Utah, applied for unemployment, did puzzles, watched Tiger King, celebrated my birthday, and drank mimosas with my roommates. It wasn't until I came home in August and saw that most of her expensive wine was gone that I realized just how dire this was. She thought, well, if I'm going to die, I might as well drink the good shit. If you know my mom, you know that's a serious statement. She didn't want to go to the hospital because she was afraid she would never leave. It dragged on for six weeks. And then slowly, she got better. Finding out that I almost lost her rattled me so much more than the earthquake did. I'm 27 and objectively an adult, but my mother is still who I turn to in times of crisis, when the world seems shaken up. And I can't seem to grasp the idea that the person who climbed into a tomb in the Egyptian pyramids, who taught me to never sacrifice my own goals for any man, who showed me how strong a person could be, might not be immortal that I could lose her. And I almost did. There were so many people who texted their sick parents and didn't realize it would be their last conversation. Now, whenever I talk with my mother, I'm aware of how precious the time is and how lucky I am that she's still around. And I can't wait to hug my mom again. does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. 
We hope you enjoyed the show. Executive producer Katie Anastas ran our show. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Kate Stockroom, with the help of assistant producer Karen Monarajo. Senior editor Kat Smith and assistant editor Arcelia Martin led our copy team. Megan Zarez managed our website today. And Fei Lu, Haley Zhao, and Renee Roden brought us today's news. Our instructors, Sally Herships, Patty Hirsch, and Ben Shapiro advised our staff. I'm Nicole McNulty. And I'm Jack Stone Truitt. Uptown Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and uptownradio.org on Thursdays at 4.30 p.m. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening.